As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be here again in Genesis chapter 3. We'll be here soon in Genesis chapter 3. And as always, before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, uh, we join with the psalmist in, in saying that our soul clings to the dust. Would you give us life according to your word? Lord, we want that. Would you teach us now and make us to understand your ways? Help us to see what is here by your Holy Spirit. Would you open our minds to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to believe? This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 3. I want to take up this morning a uh, uh, section beginning in verse 7 and a number of verses after that. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God. Now, this is the point in the narrative where we begin to see the fallout of the first human sin. Last week, if you were here with us, you know that we looked at the sin of coveting, which is part of, of a cluster of the first human sins, that, that Eve looked at the fruit that God had forbidden, and the fruit was a delight to her eyes, and desirous for wisdom, and, and that sinful desire became a sinful act. And they ate, then, of the one thing that God said not to eat. When Adam and Eve sinned, then, something within them changed. Their eyes were open, and they knew. They knew that they had disobeyed God. Now, what is the first thing, with this knowledge, what is the first thing that we expect they might do now? What's the first thing you might do 
if your eyes were suddenly opened to a particular sin that you had done. Their first action is a curious one, at least I think so. They take up a needle and thread, or some Garden of Eden version of that. They gather the biggest leaves they can find, which were probably leaves of the fig tree, and and they sew for themselves a pair of loincloths. Some of the older translations uh, translate that as aprons, but that makes me think of cooking and that they're going to maybe make muffins or something, and that's not what's going on here. It's a sort of uh, covering around uh, the waist, a belt for their midsection. And and that account in verse 7 is just a blip to read in the narrative. It takes just a few seconds, but I wonder how much time it took them to make it. And as they're stitching together these loined cloths, what is, what is running through their minds as they make each stitch? You know, this is a, a, a response to this abrupt awareness of their own sin. So are they now anxious? Paranoid? Nervous? Are their hands shaking? You know, it's not as if Adam, Adam and Eve strictly needed clothes. They're not concerned about getting a sunburn. You know, the, the clothes are not for warmth for them. It's not for some sort of bodily support or security or anything like that. Nor is there anything inherently sexual or salacious about their nakedness here. Their original nakedness, as they were created in the garden, is an expression of their original innocence. Their nakedness is a reflection of their innocence, that they're they're naked as the day they were born, naked as the day they were created, and without even a second thought about it until now. We hear earlier in the the narrative, at the end of of chapter 2 in verse 25, we hear this, that the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed But that's not the case anymore. Their sin has introduced shame and a desire to cover themselves in their shame. So today, that's what we want to take a look at, to take a look at shame. And what does God's word here and elsewhere tell us about shame? We know that many people, uh, even uh, many Christians, assume automatically that shame is a bad thing. It's sort of crept into pop psychology to distinguish uh, shame from something that, that some say is better, shame from guilt. And the distinction, at least according to some, is like this. Guilt is about behavior, but shame is about identity. That is, guilt says, I've done something bad, while shame says, I am something bad. Guilt says, I made a mess. Shame says, I am a mess. So they distinguish by separating the doing and the being, that the guilt of doing might be right or appropriate, but shame in our being is always wrong. And that's not correct. 
That's not what the Bible tells us about shame. Not only is that not the teaching of the scripture on shame, it's also a harmful perspective. To separate our doing and our being slices us up into disintegrated people. That my actions aren't really part of of my being, not part of me. And if that's the case, it's easy to excuse wrongdoing as if it's something entirely separate from myself. So if I lose my patience and curse at some other driver on the road, I can say, oh, oh, that wasn't me. That's not who I am. Or if someone cheats on their spouse, they might say, oh, that was a bad action. That was a mistake. But that's not really part of my character. You know, it's not just about bad things, it's also about good things. On the flip side, if we separate doing and being, we can't properly praise a person if their actions are entirely separate from themselves. So so if someone learns to write their name or finishes a quilt they've been working on or scores a touchdown or treats someone with compassion, we can't properly praise the person if what they do isn't part of who they are. We know, of course, that that our doing and our being are different things. That's true. But the Bible speaks of these different things as inseparable, integrated even, that God has created us as whole persons. And so what we do is interwoven with who we are. And we should not separate the two. The difference in the scripture between guilt and shame is not a difference between doing and being. The difference is this, that guilt is about the fact of the offense, whereas shame is about the feeling of the offense. Guilt is the fact of the offense. Shame is the feeling of the offense. So... We could look at it like this. If I, if I slander my neighbor or someone I don't know that's become commonplace, acceptable even, to take people that we don't know, politicians, athletes, famous people, and just say whatever we want about them. But at any rate, if I slander someone, that slander is sin. I am guilty of sin, whether I feel guilty or not, whether I feel bad about what I've done or not. Even if I try to excuse or rationalize or ignore or explain it away, the fact of the offense, the guilt remains. But if I feel guilty, in addition to that fact, if I feel guilty, that's shame. That's the feeling of the offense, that I know I've done wrong and I I even feel it in my gut. And that feeling of shame feels not fun. It's uncomfortable, sometimes humiliating, just icky. But the fact that it doesn't feel good does not make shame itself a bad thing. In fact, both guilt and shame are not themselves sin. These are the product, the outcome of of sin. 
So we could summarize shame like this. Shame is the fitting emotional response to my own sin. It's the fitting emotional response to my own sin. Or uh, some people have called it shame is a false alarm. Not false as in not true. Fault as in I've committed a fault. False alarm. Shame then is the, the feeling that helps me recognize, alerts me to my own faults and sins. It, it draws attention to this serious problem and there is then a godly use of shame. We know in the Garden of Eden before this, there was no shame because humans had not yet sinned, and so there was nothing to be ashamed of. And in the new heavens and the new earth, when we are with Jesus, fully, finally glorified with Jesus, there is also no shame because there's no sin to be ashamed of, not even desire for sin to be ashamed of. But in the fallen world that we live in now, where sin is rampant, even in our own hearts, we need shame. The Bible does not discourage us from shame. In fact, there are times when it even calls us to it. There are times when, when the Apostle Paul is writing letters to the church at Corinth and he says the phrase, I say this to your shame. You know, he's telling the Corinthians, hey, you've been arguing and suing each other because there's nobody wise enough among you to help you settle these arguments for shame. You know, your, your bad company has lulled you into a drunken stupor and you're, you're believing lies instead of the truth. For shame, I say this to your shame. You ought to feel shame. That is the fitting response to sin. So listen to me now. Listen. If you feel bad, ashamed over your sin, do not lose heart. That shameful feeling is often the right feeling. Not always. We'll talk about that in a moment, but it often is. Shame is often a sign that the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, active to mature us in holiness, in putting off sin. So as odd as it might seem that Adam and Eve, their first response to their own sin was to pick up this needle and thread that may seem strange, that, that they're trying to you know, hide maybe their nakedness by stitching clothes, this loss of innocence, and the alternative to that would be far worse. Shamelessness is scary. Imagine if Adam and Eve after they have defied God, just carried on as usual. There's still guilt, still the fact of their offense, but no shame, no feeling of it. They, they bit the fruit, this direct disobedience to God, and they just shrug. Oh, well, what's done is done. It's probably not that big a deal anyway. Maybe God doesn't even know what he's talking about. 
That sort of shamelessness is not what we want. Shamelessness is Satan's response to his sin. He feels no guilt about it. And shamelessness is a frightful condition that sometimes even humans are fooled into. The prophet Jeremiah talks about this as he's speaking to the people. He says it almost verbatim uh, multiple times throughout his writing. Uh, But he says it in in chapter 6. I'll pick up in verse uh, 14, I suppose. He's speaking here about uh, certain prophets and priests. He says, "They, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. What's going on here is that these people, these religious leaders, were trying to heal the wounds of sin in the people by just saying, peace, peace, just pronounce it, but there's not, that's not real peace. That's like saying, you know, if your arm gets chopped, oh, tis but a scratch. You know, that's not fitting to the situation. The, the gauge to assess sin there is broken. These people are not ashamed of their sin. He says, you don't even know how to blush. You don't even know the fact that you ought to be embarrassed of this. That's frightening. There are some people, Paul says in the New Testament as he writes to Timothy, some people who he describes as having consciences who are seared. Their conscience is seared that these people who might have once at some point felt shame and the sting of sin, but but the nerves of their conscience are burnt, fried, no longer usable, that that throughout, you know, routinely ignoring and suppressing repentance of their sin, at some point they just no longer feel bad anymore about it. And I, I, I know that the feeling of shame is rough. It is. But if you find yourself feeling shame, praise God for his mercy in that. Because if you don't feel shame, at least from time to time, if you don't feel any shame, that should scare you. You're telling yourself, peace, peace, when you are the furthest thing away from peace. No, I don't say this just to frighten you, nor am I saying that's a hopeless situation, but if that's happening in you, you need to humble yourself before God now right now. You can stop listening to the sermon and begin praying in your mind now. Pray to God that the Holy Spirit will convict your heart concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Pray that he will guide you into all truth and bring up shame where it is necessary in your life. Because the last thing any of us wants is to be like the people of the city of destruction. 
City of Destruction is, uh, is part of the, the old book, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, th that's okay. Um, but the, the story is basically this, this journey of the main character, Christian, uh, on his progress, I suppose. He's journeyed from his, the City of Destruction to the Celestial City. And the story begins with, with Christian encountering this book that he opens and reads and finds as he reads this burden on his back. That is, that he realizes his own sin and he, and he has a sense of, of shame about it. And he says, what shall I do? He's going around, what shall I do about this? Many of the townspeople just scoff and jeer at him. Oh, Christian, you're being overly sensitive about these things. Some of the townsfolk avoid him. You know, they're putting a, a damper on the good time that we're having, the revelry and all of that, by moping about this. Even his wife doesn't seem to get it. She just shushes him, tucks him into bed, and puts him to sleep to settle his brains. And sleep is good, of course. You can remedy a lot of things, but sleep is going to do very little to give actual relief to shame. For Christian, shame is God's agent of blessing in him. Shame is the impetus that starts him on his journey. It's the thing that prods him along the way where he will eventually meet the cross of Jesus, where his shame will just come snapping off of his back and it rolls down the hill into the, the mouth of the empty tomb. Shame is the thing that carries him uh, along, starts him on the way that will eventually bring him home to the celestial city. Let me be clear about all of this, then. Shame isn't something we, we love or want to snuggle up to. You know, we don't love the alarm of shame any more than we, we might love the alarm clock in our house that goes off at five in the morning to wake us up. The, the very nature of an alarm is to be disruptive, and that can be hard, but it has a good use. It's a good use if it's working properly. Because the false alarm that shame is can malfunction. It can be dis, uh, misused. So in the remainder of our time, I want to give us three questions or three tests to help us calibrate our shame so that it's while working as God intends it to work. So, the first question, the first test here is, why? Why am I ashamed? When I feel shame, I should ask, why am I feeling this? So, if, if, you, had, if you had a heart monitor... And, and that heart monitor starts to beep every time you eat a salad. Either that means you need to stop eating salads because, well, they're bad for your heart, or that means your monitor is, is alerting you to the wrong things. It's broken in some way. 
In a similar way, shame has an alert to a particular thing. It's this emotion that's meant to alert us specifically to sin. But there are times in which we feel or experience something that feels a lot like shame, but it's beeping at things that aren't sin. There are lots of examples of this. So some people have that uh, uncomfortable feeling about things about their body. Maybe they have struggles with acne or body hair or or feeling too fat or too skinny, too short or too tall, and, and that alarm feels like it's going off within me. Or some people have this alarm that goes off about their parenting. You know, we often sometimes hear about mom guilt. I suppose there's dad guilt as well, feeling like a bad mom, a bad dad, a bad parent. I I let my kid watch too much TV today. I forgot to give them lunch money. I I didn't give them enough vegetables today. People uh, sometimes feel shame, what they think is shame about their work. Oh, I didn't get the last promotion. I then start to doubt or question my skills. Maybe I'm reassessing decisions I've made in the past. If I upset people, trying to figure out whether that was the right thing, was I productive enough? Sometimes people feel this negative feeling about their house. Their house maybe isn't, isn't big enough, isn't clean enough, isn't pretty enough. Now, there, to be clear, there may be sin intertwined in some of these things. There may be, we should acknowledge that, examine that, but often what we are feeling in those things is not shame over sin. That feeling is just a sense of failure. Not a failing God, but a failure to meet the expectations of other people or perhaps even uh, expectations of ourselves. And if that's the case, then we need to learn to shut that alarm off because it's broken. That's not even shame to begin with. So we should ask, if we think we feel shame, why do I feel ashamed? And if the answer does not involve sin, well, then you can lay that feeling down and leave it behind and carry on. Now, what if it is sin? We should then ask, okay, how, second question, how is shame being used? That is, what is the function of shame in a certain context? The feeling of shame is a very powerful feeling. And the power of shame then leads some people to use it as a weapon. We need to beware, then, that that we don't accept or extend this weaponized version of shame. We know some families, perhaps you all are familiar with this, maybe you grew up this way, maybe it is this way still, some families are governed primarily by shame, and that's not good. That people, parents or brothers, sisters, however, pile on feelings of guilt to manipulate someone else into doing what I want them to do. So every time there's a misstep, it's like, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, whether that's spoken or just with a look. 
Families sometimes use it this way. Churches sometimes do as, as well. You know, churches, we talk about sin because the Bible does. It's important that we do. We need to uncover what is in our heart. But some people then use sin and shame as a club to bash us over the head with it. So that the main motivator in some churches, week after week after week, the main driver is fear. That's weaponized shame. Some people, it's not even just their families, their churches, we do this to ourselves. We turn the shame back on ourselves, wallow in our shame, whip ourselves with it as a sort of penance, as if that's going to make it better. Those are wrong uses of shame. Now, there are proper uses. God uses shame. He uses shame to humble the proud. Jesus even sometimes publicly shames people at times, so there is a fitting place for fear in these things. But, but when Jesus does shame others, it's not to people who are already weighed down or burdened, crushed even by their sin. To those people, Jesus often extends a hand. But Jesus puts shame on those who are arrogant, the self-righteous, to humble them. That's a proper use of shame. We should ask ourselves, how is the shame being used, either by ourselves or by others? The third question, third test of these uh, things is what is the response to shame? And this is probably, I think it is, the most important question of the three. What is the response to shame? So, if, if the shame that I feel is in response to actual sin, it's not just insecurity, it's real sin that I feel shame over, and it's not just some manipulation tactic that others are using to try to move me around, control me, but then, I, once I recognize this is real shame, then that proper shame is meant to be a call to action. Shame has a good function, but it's never a good place to live. We don't want to just settle into it. Shame is a hallway that we walk through, not a bedroom that we sleep in. So then we should ask, what's the proper response to shame? Because not all actions in response to shame are right. When we look at Adam and Eve's response to their newfound shame, they do lots of things that are, well, not good. They feel this shame, but some of their response is to run and hide. I was afraid, so I hid. You know, as if God was not going to see them behind some oak tree. They also begin to blame. You know, Adam says, the woman that, that you gave me, blaming God even there, wow, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. You hear the blame there? And then they try to cover their nakedness with this sort of homemade sewing kit. We probably recognize these responses because we do them. I do. 
I've done them. The sort of knee-jerk reaction to shame is often hide, run, blame, cover, any of these things. But, but even though we do them, we, these happen, that's not the sort of response to shame that we want. It's not the response that God wants from us either. What we want is a response more like the woman who's, who's at the Pharisee's home in, in Luke chapter 7. Uh, in this, uh, we, you don't have to turn there. Uh, in this account here, uh, Jesus is having a meal with a bunch of these religious Pharisees, and this woman comes in who's not named. She's just described as a sinner. Boy, how would you like to... Oh, we know we're all sinners, of course, but how would you like to just be... You know, that's the word just to describe you. We're not told the details about what gave her that reputation as a sinner, but you know she knew why. And they all knew why. She she was a sinner. Surely there was something shameful about what brought her to that point. At any rate, here she is. And as Jesus is is eating, this woman, this sinner, kneels at the feet of Jesus and begins to weep that her shame in her heart is now coming out of her eyes. And she begins to wet Jesus' feet with her tears and with ointment, and then to dry his feet with her hair. And in the midst of this spectacle, Jesus, but in front of all these high religious folks, looks at this woman in the eye and says, Your sins are forgiven. That's not because she passed the shame test and did the right thing that she was supposed to do. It's not as if she's earned some sort of righteousness or grace by her works. It's that this woman saw the worth of Jesus. She loved Jesus, and she put faith in Jesus. And so Jesus' parting words to this woman is, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This isn't the sort of peace, peace when there is no peace. Let's try to sleep it off and settle our brains and maybe it'll all feel okay. This is actual peace from the Lord Jesus that he lifts her shame off of her. That's what we want. Now for Adam and Eve, that was not their response, and and it's not as if they've entirely missed the boat here. Their response to shame isn't good, but that doesn't mean it's now hopeless. There is still hope, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. And we know that in that hope, the Lord, because of their sin, still is going to give them consequence, serious ones, still is going to to lay out a curse for sin. Those things are, are serious things that we will, I hope, look at another time. But there is also the Lord's mercy woven through these things. That we see in the narrative, there's a big conversation that happens after Adam and Eve between them and the Lord. But the first thing that God does 
in response to their sin is the same thing, actually, that Adam and Eve had done after they realized their sin. That God picks up a needle and thread, or whatever means he used to do this, and makes something. We see it later in verse 21 of this chapter. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This isn't just a little waistband, a loincloth to cover their midsection. This is a full garment for their bodies. Nor is it just fig leaves of a plant. These are skins of leather. Nor is it, this isn't just a human stitching some sort of makeshift cover in a fit of panic. This is the Lord Almighty clothing these creatures who had defied him out of his own sheer grace. Now, for the Christian, we know that shame is still an ongoing part of our life on earth. We should pay attention to it when it comes into, it, into us. This is the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart to alert you to your sin so you can put your sin to death by Jesus' power with real confession and, and real repentance and a real pursuit of holiness. We want all of that. But over all of these things, you should know that your guilt, the fact of your offenses, your guilt is forgiven that Jesus clothes you, not just with fig leaves, not even just with leather skins, but with white robes, robes that are washed in the blood of the Lamb who cleanses us from all our sin, washed in his own blood. That means that shame is not your master. Shame is God's servant to lead you to King Jesus. Follow after that. And when you meet Jesus and you hear him say, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Believe him. Would you pray with me? Ah, Lord, would you help us to have the wisdom and the eyes to see shame rightly? To, pu to put aside anything that is not shame or not from you, but when we feel shame over our sin, would you, would you use it to humble us, to bring us to you as the Savior of sinners and the Prince of Peace? Lord, that's what we want we don't want to just hide, but to come to you. And we know you will receive us because of your mercy. Thank you for being this kind of God. We trust you in your wisdom and your power. And we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.